I better start here. Uh, I've already gotten a little bit for this, and I, you know, I think some folks have misunderstood me, and so we'll try to get back on the same page. Um, some, some folks are, are accusing me of taunting Montana and taunting winter. <laughs> and yeah, I did. But, but let's be honest about this, okay? You know, first of all, you know, this is really, like, this is spring, right? This is spring in Montana. I mean, we get smacked with this, and it just, you know, it, it's a little bit uh, life-robbing. But also, you know, I just want to, you know, I did make a statement that I will, um, you know, like last week I wore shorts, and like there are no, pants are not required at the vineyard after last week. That's still true. But I'm married, and so I couldn't get out of the house, like, you know, with shorts on. So there is one more day that I can tell you, one more day for sure, that I will be wearing pants. Um, on on uh, Resurrection Day, on Easter Sunday, I wear pants for Jesus. And, uh, and then after that, pants are, are optional for the rest of the year. So as that, long as you're wearing shorts. <laughs> hey, I get, you know, legalism is something that we like to speak against here. Uh, but, you know, whatever you got to say, that's, um, you know, I mean, a kilt is, is a covering, is it not? I, I mean, I could go the summer preaching with a kilt. Maybe, maybe we, this should be the summer of kilts. Or maybe we should just get to, yeah, this stage is just high enough that I think a kilt would be pretty dang good. That's a, uh, so why don't we talk about Jesus? Would you, would you like to do some of that? Um, oh my goodness. You guys are a bad influence on me. I'd, I got to tell you, oh, well, as we get closer to Holy Week, we're getting close to the climax of our series, taking a journey through the gospel of John and, and looking for the glory of God that's revealed to creation. We started this journey together in January, and I told you then that it was all prep for Holy Week and for the party that we're going to have in Holy Week. I can't believe we are just a week away from getting to kick that party off. Uh, now, rather than, than this being a, a verse-by-verse exegesis of the book of John, we're using the text to see how Jesus is the way that the living God expresses himself to creation, and how this self-expression opens up a path of reconciliation for all of us. Now, we've seen interactions with Jesus in this, um, one-on-one interactions, and you can think about like, like the woman at the well, or maybe with Nicodemus, um, or even with the disciples as he first started to, to meet him, that we have the, these one-on-one situations. We've, all, we've also seen interactions with groups, groups both large and small, like multitudes of tens of thousands, and, and then also more intimate uh, teachings that provide instruction to the closest followers. We've seen him engage also with religious and civil authorities. All of these, these things hold in common the fact that, that Jesus is deconstructing what people know about God, and he's using glory to reconstruct the reality of what relationship with God truly is. What's being constru- deconstructed are not notions of religion and rituals as pathways to God, but the practice of religion and rituals in the place of a relationship that reflects the ordered designs of creation. Religion and ritual observance are what happens when faith is not present, when interactions with God become an exercise of behavior really meant to either avoid hardship or maybe check the boxes of obligation. 
Now this actually, if you think about it, this is more in line with paganism than it is Christianity. Because it suggests that we can cause God to do or not do based on what ritual we perform, the words that we recite, or the ceremony that we attend. All of these things can be done without actually submitting to a will higher than self. We can be the most excellent religious people and still not actually submit to a will that's higher than than our own. This is the domain of selfish survival and kingdom making. It's a system that's meant to maintain myself as the center of order and to keep my will intact rather than being in submission to the original design of creation with Jesus as the center. Now, in contemporary times, this can be expressed by using Scripture as a mechanism for information rather than application. Information on how to, how to keep God happy. Information on correct behavior and what boxes to check in order to kind of clear the bar of, of Christianity. This is a, minimal, a minimalist view of following God that, that kind of demonstrates one foot in the will of self and one foot in the will of God. But this is like a loophole kind of Christianity. This is a cultural Christianity. This is a popular Christianity that seeks information to guide how little must be given up to achieve salvation. That's really what that's all about. Looking at Scripture only for information creates a religious expression that's less faith and more fear, less sacrifice and more selfish. It's saying the right thing, doing the right thing, getting something in return from this. William Barclay gives, gives a picture of the information-only religious expression of Scripture when he wrote this. There are certain religious people who shed a gloom wherever they go. You ever meet anyone like this? I've been this, so I, I got to say yes because I looked in the mirror this morning. There are certain religious people who shed a gloom wherever they go. They're suspicious of all joy and happiness. To them, religion is a thing of black clothes, pants. I might have added that, but... To them, religion is a thing of black clothes, the lower voice, the expulsion of social fellowship. What we've seen Jesus do in this time, Jesus deconstructs the notion that we can use ritual and religion in place of relationship. All of this is wrapped in the mantle of glory. Glory, the weighty, felt presence of God, testifies to a love so great that, that it, it creates and sustains transformation. And information just doesn't have that kind of power. But there's a problem with that. It does start with information. But one thing that I know for myself is that hearing other people talk about Jesus, reading about Jesus, going to classes where I learned about Jesus didn't make Jesus real to me. I could not receive the blessing of Jesus until Jesus was more than a story, more than a lesson, more than an anecdote. To be introduced to Jesus meant understanding that he isn't merely historical, anecdotal, and certainly knowing that he isn't a fantasy 
a notion or a fable that would give structure to some kind of a moral code that we're here to try to create together. I needed and need Jesus to be real. I need to experience Jesus to know that I'm not chasing fairy tales. What we see in the Gospel of John is a presentation of the reality of Jesus. The Jesus that we're invited to experience, the Jesus that changes us and perfects us, the Jesus that allows us to be called children of the Most High God, to receive the blessing of Jesus. I needed Jesus to be an experienced reality. For this to move beyond religion, to be a relationship, God has to be more than an idea. If God is just an idea, then the information is all that we have. So John, the apostle, takes the weighty felt presence of God and presents it as a reality that we have when we know Jesus. The narrative that we followed is, is one that, that people, it's one of people knowing and being known by God, and everything changes because of it. The unfolding glory of God followed the narrative of the life of Jesus and how he interacts with us. And this is the journey that we've been on since January, this narrative of the life of Jesus interacting with creation. We have a God that that reveals his glory by moving towards us. And if you think back to to the early parts of John, when he's meeting the the apostles or the disciples for the first time, and and they, they, they see him walk by and there's something different, and they leave John the Baptist and they follow him. And when they turn and follow him, what does Jesus do? Jesus did for them what he's done for all of us and will do for all of us. He turned and went to them. The people that sought Jesus, he went and closed the distance between him and those that were looking for him. We have a God that reveals his glory, not just by moving towards us, but as he moves towards us. And this is where we can think back of of Nathaniel in John chapter 2, when when he meets Nathaniel and and he sees beyond the the sarcasm and, and the criticism and the cynicism, almost like he's talking directly to me, and he sees through the mask of brokenness to the man on the inside, and he talks to the man on the inside as he just like, like goes right through that mask. This is the glory of God being revealed to us, that God would move towards us, that God would see beyond our masks of brokenness. But also then we see that, John, that, that Jesus wants to be in the party with us. He, his first miracle in creating the, the uh, water into wine at this party, he wants to live this out with us. He goes towards us. He sees beyond all of the, the, the stuff that life has done to us. He wants to be in the party with us, but then he doesn't stop there. Because he becomes that atoning sacrifice. He stands in our place. In all of this, we see rituals created to purify. All of that falls short. All mode and mechanism we create to make ourselves worthy of God, acceptable to God, all of that can't do the job. The glory of God is felt when an overflow of grace comes from his provision of that ultimate sacrifice that we're going to celebrate together in two weeks. This is the God that we are invited to experience. And in this passage of John's gospel today, his ministry will end 
as he passes the job off to those that he loves. Now, to know Jesus is to know the glory of God. And that brings us back to where we started so many weeks ago. The glory, this weighty felt presence of God, is the blessing we receive through Jesus, not as a part of another person's story, but as our lived reality. A reality of mercy offered, compassion extended, and love activated that was intended from the very beginning of creation. It's coming to understand the design of creation. The design of creation that we know in the economy and ecology of God that we get to give. So today we consider the final words of Jesus in what's known as the farewell discourse. The last teaching he will give before he steps into the glory of death and resurrection. This passage is is rich from a theological perspective, but just as what Jesus says is important, what he does is also important. As we look for streams of glory, the place where we can feel the tangible presence of God that just permeates through the text. This final teaching comes by way of dialogue with the Father. And so following the teaching that we just had in in John 16, where he's instructing the disciples, in the same context, at the same time, still in the presence, presence of the disciples, Jesus turns his gaze to heaven, and through his prayer to the Father, he offers a final lesson. So after all of that, join me in John 17, verse 1. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. This final discourse, this this final lesson that he's giving the disciples before he will leave with them and head to the garden is a prayer. He teaches through prayer. The hour has come. This first section of the prayer is a personal dialogue with the Father. The revelation of glory that, that's, that, that's coming, it, it speaks to the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He's talking about the events that are about to take place. Now, if you consider human glory, the way glory is ascribed to historical figures is often tied to how they die and what they die for. This really is how we experience glory, especially in the, uh, the, the over-Hollywoodized world that we live in, where glory is ascribed to the way people die and what they chose to die for. Most of the examples that I came up with that I could have used as, as uh, illustrations of that point were U.S. Marines. 
academically, I'm sure that there are other examples of heroism outside of the Marine Corps. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure that they're there, right? I'm sure that they're there. It can't just be Marines and Jesus. (laughs) Maybe it's Marines and Jesus, but we'll see. But if we follow the thread of glory coming through how one dies and what they die for, we see Jesus standing in the place of the highest glory. If that really is the context that we are going to see glory, there is no higher context than what Jesus is talking about and what Jesus, in fact, will actually do. We know that this is more than information, more than than allegory, more than uh, fairy tale. We know the historic event that actually occurred. Jesus is going to suffer a torment before and during his death that is really, if you think about it, it is the highest form of diabolical creativity. And he does that willingly. Man, the Romans were good at torture. The Romans were really good. And you think about how much time and energy that we humans put into causing other humans uh, pain. The Romans were good at the task. He knows what's going to happen. And he goes willingly. The weight given to the presence of God, when we talk about the weighty felt presence of God, this is the event that gives the ultimate weight to that weighty felt presence. He would willingly take our place in death so that we would have eternal life. You know, last week in John 16, we talked about Jesus, uh, it, you know, the, the Jesus of this narrative, it, Jesus as forgiving, as a sympathetic gift to the 12, and by, by extension, a gift to us. And, and this is taking that same paradigm a step further with the knowledge that it is forgiving, sympathetic, compassion, but it's also willing. We saw that Jesus knows that the 12 that are around him, the people that he's willing to die for, are going to abandon him. They know that he knows, Jesus knows in a few short minutes and hours, these 12 that that are loyal, uh, their loyalty will be tested, they will be found wanting. He's going to be abandoned and disowned by his most loyal followers. Knowing that this is all true, Jesus loves them through their weakness. Knowing what they're about to do to him, he still loves them and is willing to do what he is about to do for them. The weight of his presence is found in that love. The love that he has for us to take our place in death even though we struggle with our loyalty to him. He will see us redeemed to the Father. In this prayer, he offers us reassurance. He offers us the reassurance of eternal life that results from having faith in that love that Jesus has for us. He also speaks to authority. In this opening of the farewell discourse, he talks about authority with undertones of Genesis 1 and also John 1. Jesus declares himself to be the Christ, one with the Father, of the same substance as the Father, the one true God. And again, this speaks to relationship. His relationship with the Father his relationship with us, 
and then by extension, our relationship with the Father, all made possible because of how much he loves us. Back into the farewell discourse in verse 6. I've revealed you, I've revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They're always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe you. They believe that you sent me. My prayer is not, uh, not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I've given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth, teaching them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them, so they can be made holy by your truth. What a phenomenal demonstration of what church looks like. Not just a phenomenal demonstration of what church looks like, but what a phenomenal demonstration of the ecology and the economy of God. This, this truth that we get to give. Woven into this section is, you know, we've got a prayer for protection, but it's also a prayer of acceptance, affection, and attachment, and all of that testifies to the reality of God's glory being a force to change the nature of economy from we get to get to we get to give. And that turns culture on its head. The gift we have from Jesus is love, but love activated to the point that would take him to the cross. We can't fail to note that. This is not just an intellectual exercise. When we talk of the love of Jesus, we have to talk about love activated by the fact that he willingly went to be tortured and killed. The gift we have from Jesus is love, love activated that takes him to the cross. Applying that to the economy of God, we get then that love. 
But then we give the same love as we put down our selfish ways in order to pick up the cross and do for others what Jesus did for us. And so in this farewell discourse, we see a transition and we see the beginning of a commissioning. We are able to do what Jesus did because we were given to Jesus by God. We're able to do the stuff that Jesus did because we belong to him. This speaks back to that point that that we made earlier about submission. This means that the Holy Spirit moves our hearts to respond to the appeals of Jesus. And through this movement, we demonstrate the glory of God because our actions demonstrate the weight of his presence in this world. The broken person made whole, the wounded person healed, the selfish person that turns to sacrifice, all of this brings honor to Jesus and demonstrates exactly what Jesus is doing. We are now with this prayer commission to this task. As God sent out Jesus, Jesus sends out the church. This makes the prayer really interesting uh, because verse 9 is is a verse that that gives some trouble. This is a verse that that, that can create a little bit of conflict, a little bit of controversy, because in verse 9, Jesus says that he's not praying for the world. He's only praying for the ones that belong to him. And that can be problematic if we don't look at this in context. What, what, What does it mean that Jesus isn't praying for the world? What that means is, he isn't praying for the world, the world that stands for human society that organizes itself without God. He's not praying for that world. He's not praying for the world that organizes itself without God at the center. But what we have to keep in mind with that is that that he also came because God so loved the world. So how do we reconcile all of this into one narrative? He's not praying. He's praying for those that belong to him, not for the world. But he also came because he loved the world. And this is reconciled through the activity of the church. Jesus sends his disciples, us, in the time between the Sundays, in the time from the resurrection until when he comes again, he sends us into the world that is not organized around God in order to lead it back to God. So what he's praying here is not a prayer of of exclusion. It's a prayer of inclusion, but it's also a prayer of commissioning where he's telling his disciples as he prays to the Father, it's time to get to work. With that task comes an offering and a warning. With the commissioning of the church, we have an offering of joy. Joy that passes all understanding. Joy that that makes no sense based on, on some circumstances that we might see. Joy that cannot be taken by anyone or anything. Joy that comes from the promise that what Jesus did was for us. And what it means is everything. All of this 
is designed to bring joy. But it will be at a cost. It comes at a cost because when we accept this commissioning task, we become enemies of disorder. And this is the essence of application over information. The love of Jesus transforms not just into healed followers, but sent to the world to collect the lost. Joy is promised alongside the warning, the warning of friction that we face as we war against disorder. The hardship, the rejection, the suffering, all of the things that we will see Jesus experience as we celebrate Holy Week, all of that is real because we war against disorder. And because it happened to him, we know that it will happen to us. And the outcome will be joy. This is glory to us, which leads to glory through us. Back in our passage today, verse 20, Jesus still praying to the Father in the presence of his disciples. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you loved them as much as you love me. This is a really good prayer. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. When they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Oh, how great is the Christian's glory. That's the opening line of a commentary that, that was written about this passage in 1735 by a German theologian and a Greek scholar. Um, he's right. How great is the Christian's glory. I mean, you can kind of feel it as we sing that song together, Christ be magnified. Jesus has given his followers the glory that the Father has given him. It's interesting, too, in his knowledge of what is coming, in his knowledge of what's about to happen, he didn't speak about being crucified. We don't see that in the text at all. When he's praying, he's not talking about being crucified. He spoke about being glorified. 
And so what we see then is that the cross is glory. This means that for us, glory is the cross that we bear. Glory is found in the sacrifice of our will for the will of Jesus, living for him rather than living for me. It means living for others instead of living for me. And in that is glory. Glory for Jesus came because of his perfect obedience and submission to the plan, to the will of the Father. Glory through us comes from our obedience to the will of God over the will of self. And when this happens, we take on the likeness of Jesus. Because then we find ourselves at the cross. Glory is seen by the world because glory permeates our thoughts, words, and actions as we as a testimony to submission to the love of God and his plan to reconcile creation back to itself. In all of that, we will find joy. But also, a joy that is a mere foretaste of the joy to come. If we share in the glory and suffering of Jesus on earth, we will share his glory and triumph in life everlasting all driven by the application of love to the economy of God that we get to give. As we close out chapter 17, the ministry of Jesus is ended. Jesus is done. His task on earth is fulfilled. His glorification is at hand. William Barclay again captures this moment when he writes this. From this prayer, Jesus was to go straight out to the betrayal, the trial, and the cross. He was not to speak to his disciples again. It is a wonderful and precious thing to remember that before these terrible hours, his last words we're not of despair, but of glory. Amen.